It's American culture in action. <laughs> All right. Here we are. We're back on the air now. All set now, gang. One, two, three. I want to say right now tonight. Hello, Boston. I, I just want to apologize. <laughs> of course, you realize this is New York. This is the center of civilization here. Yeah, this is where love flows. Yes, this is Sodom and Gomorrah here. By the way, wouldn't it be terrible to have lived in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah? And you live 40 miles out of town... And you never even heard about it. <laughs> that was just a place where you'd go on Saturday nights to buy shoes once in a while. Well, all right, here we are. We're back at the limelight. And it's, it's Abraham Lincoln's birthday. That was another big celebration that Miss Shields used to always have. And one of the things that she used to ask us to do after we would salute the flag, after we would give the Pledge of Allegiance, after we would all stand at attention next to our desk on, on his birthday, she would say, all together now, boys and girls, would all of you please, now stand up now, all together, sing Happy Birthday, Dear Abe. You see, Miss Shields was so old, that Abe was kind of a contemporary, you know? So how about it? We are going to be the first people that I know of publicly here in this great year of 1966 to sing Happy Birthday, Dear Abe Lincoln. And if you want to join us out there in Teaneck, New Jersey, and in Boston, stand up next to your radio and belt it out. All right, here we go. Happy birthday Come on, let's hit it. Happy Did you notice the way I led that singing there? How many of you spend any time in front of the lady glee club teacher? That you, you know this bit? <laughs> we had this tall lady named Miss Nelson who looked like a chicken. And she had this fantastic Adam's apple. And she was the kind of lady that wore big blue beads, you know, that hung way down. She was the artistic lady. You know, all schools have got one artistic lady who always felt she should have come to New York and gone to the American Academy of Art. Instead, she wound up at the Warren G. Harding grade school. And she wears big dirndls, you know, that kind of lady with a lot of all kinds of bangles and stuff. And she was always talking about her friends in Greenwich Village. Only she pronounced it Greenwich Village. 
<laughs> that she used to stand up there in front of us, and I watched that Adam's apple go... And I always see that image of that fantastic chicken moving back and forth. And you know, it's funny, whenever I see Leonard Bernstein on television, I keep seeing this chicken, you know? Come on, boys, let's hear it back in the peckhorn section. That's it. You know, and he's directing some fantastic Beethoven thing. Well, Miss Nelson specialized in, can you bake a cherry pie, darling film? And I always sang bass, and all I used to do was go, zum, 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 zum. <laughs> Boy, it's terrible to grow up in a world of, of altos that sang, that got to sing the melody, sopranos that sang the melody, second tenors, and you go, zum, 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 bum, bum. And, and, and then, then we used to sing this one, Oh, the bells of St. Mary's. And all I would be doing was going, Bong, 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 bong. So these things scar you for life. Well, I, I you know, speaking of Abraham Lincoln, one of, <laughs> one, of my, one of my really traumatic experiences with Abe Lincoln in school goes back to an auditorium session. Oh, boy, I imagine half of you have, uh, believe me, I bet half of you out there have a sense, whenever you go to a Broadway play, that Walter Kerr has said, a stimulating evening in the theater. You have a feeling of being in a very expensive auditorium session. And your behind is asleep. You know, and, you, and you, you pretend like you're liking it. You sit back there and you say, Walter Kerr said it was a stimulating evening in the theater. And you watch plays so dull, you can't even see them up there, you know? You can't, you can't focus. Your eyes keep going like this. You have a feeling that the whole thing is covered with a haze. And next to you is this loud lady eating candy kisses, you know? And you can hear her upper plate going clink, clink, clack. And you can smell the peanuts coming out of the kisses, you know, the popcorn. And next to you, this guy, have you ever sat in a theater in some fantastic theatrical evening and they're doing Hamlet? I saw Richard Burton do Hamlet. You know, this is supposed to be a fantastic evening. And Burton is running around there. He sort of looks like a little fat guy, you know. He really does when you see him in person. And Burton is saying to be or not to be. He looks out at us, and we look up. We say, yeah, yeah, that's right. To be or not to be, that is the question. And next to me was this little fat guy. You know the kind that snores way down deep. You know, you can just hear the rumbling of the fires of hell. And he just kept going, oh. And you know the kind that begins to spread over into your seat? You move over a little bit, and you push the lady next to you, and she thinks you're trying to make the scene with her, you know? This tall, skinny spinster, and he goes, oh. 
at Burton, I, ever since I, you know, I, it's funny, I, I can remember these fantastic scenes that I can hear the obligato of snoring going through, and the, the, the cough. It's like you're living in a whole sea of coughing. And you can just hear it going on. Well, one day, we had this auditorium session, see? I am playing in the band. Now, I, I, I submit, and I've said this many times, that any people out there, any grown-up type, who have ever played in a high school orchestra or a high school band, at the age of 15, have already tasted the bitter cup of life. They already know that acrid sense of defeat. Boy, you don't know how defeating you can be, how, how fantastically under the weather you can be trying to play your, your string bass, and they're doing some tremendous thing for Wagner. Have you ever seen the bass parts for Wagner? Oh, gee, you know, you're way behind, and the orchestra's four pages ahead of you. You're still playing, and Dirks is going three, six, nine, one, two, three, bases, bases, and you're all, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and there was this little fat girl used to play the string bass next to me, and she was one of these precise little girls that would count all the rest. And I'm standing there with my string bass, you know, with my bow hanging there. And we're playing something like the entrance of the gods into Valhalla. Well, if you've ever heard the Hammond High School band or the Hammond High School orchestra playing the entrance of the gods into Valhalla, you know why the gods went. <laughs> and, and, and we're all standing on this whole sweaty bunch of kids, you know, and I got my string bass, you can smell the rosin. I feel this old bass leaning up against me, you know, I hide down behind this big, fat thing, you know, so, boy, I feel it, I love that feel. And Dirks is up there, he's directing us, and it's going, he would sing it out. Of course, it didn't sound like what we were playing, because he would sing what was on the notes, you know. And we had one musician in our orchestra. One musician. I'll never forget how rotten she made all the rest of us feel. No, seriously, it was this one girl who was an oboe player. And she was a state, national, international stellar champion. Oh, she was great. And she later went on to become a part of the Chicago Symphony and the whole thing, you know. And she was a little weasened old lady at the age of 15. Oh, yeah, there's something about a girl that dedicates herself to the oboe. The very special girl. And she would sit there with that little thing. Now, you, you've all run across the oboe in crossword puzzles. Well, you know, there is, a, there is an old, there is an old, well, it's kind of almost dogma among classical musicians all oboe players are nuts yep they are and she would sit there and her eyes would be lighting with that with that strange fanaticism and our poor little orchestra were struggling and you would see him glow all of a sudden we would come to the oboe section that one little part where the oboe would play about five notes, and he would go, 
And she would go, oh, she would soar. She would soar over it. We'd all stand. Suddenly, for one and a half measures, we were in orchestra. And then she would finish and she would settle back. So that was the way our orchestra was. And every day when we had an auditorium session, we would come in early. Now, all of you have been in high school, and you know when they say there will be an auditorium session today in the second period, the first section will file out quietly while the second section comes in, and you will go to study hall when you're through with the auditorium session. Classes will begin as regular in the fourth period. Well, that was always a big moment for us, see. Because we were going to perform. And we would go down about 15 minutes early. We'd get out our instruments. We'd stand down there in the pit. And Dirks would say, well, today, when they file in, let's try uh, such a defeated man. He'd say, let's try uh, pomp and circumstances. You think you're up to it today? Pomp and circumstances. <laughs> You should see a high school orchestra. It was like it was like swimming underwater in a bowl of Ralston. So let's have pomp and circumstances. Now pass out, pass out the music, Doris, and Doris would pass the music from section to section. We would look down at it. And one day, the day was Abraham Lincoln's birthday. We're having a special Lincoln program. And they hand out things like national emblems. And they hand out things like, oh, the stars, oh, America, the gem of the ocean, Columbia, and all this stuff. They hand it out, all patriotic melodies. We stand down there. And Mr. Dirks, before the auditorium session, said, we have something special today. We are going to perform for a dramatic event. And you're going to have to watch your cues. When I give you the cue, be ready to play. Because there will be a man on the stage. And he has given me this music. And as I give each cue, you play the music. Now we will go down, right on the national emblem first. All right, check it. All right. Meeting on the old campground. All right, you got it out there. And so we're checking our music. What is this about, you know? Well, about five minutes before the auditorium session is to begin, I could see this curtain. You know, I'm right in the back. I'm a bass player, see? And the stage is directly behind me. I could smell the curtain. You know that musty, dusty smell of 18 trillion hours of auditorium sessions? <laughs> Millions of classes have graduated from this stage. You could just smell all the dusty past. And you can smell where kids have been sick up there and have swept it up. You know. Yeah, you know, the, you know the old faded purple curtain. And in the middle is our high school emblem, this great big H hanging. And you could see where it had come untacked, one part of it sort of hanging out like that. And we had one of these auditoriums that looked, well, it looked like a second-rate movie house of the uh, neo-Moorish type. You know, heavily laced with late Rudolph Valentino. And it had all kinds of cherubs all around the side. 
They had little purple vases and stuff packed all around the edges. We all, you know, the kids are filing in, and I'm standing back there, and Dirks is up by the podium watching it, and I can hear somebody pulling a chair behind me, behind the curtain, and I hear some talk. I can't quite make it out, but it's kind of blurred. I hear a little talk, and I hear, I hear one voice I recognize, Mr. Spone. Mr. Spone was our principal. Now, whenever I think of a principal, I think of Mr. Spone. Mr. Spone was Lewis Stone Squared. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, some night, remind me to tell you of the night that I took part in and actually started. I'll tell you, I, t I, I have to take credit for this. I started the first student demonstration in America. <laughs> Inadvertently, no, it was the nuttiest thing. I'm standing out in front of high school one day, and our high school basketball team had won a sectional tournament, you know. And it's noon, and I'm standing out there. 28,000 kids were all standing out. This is Indiana, you know, where basketball is a religion. And our high school team had just won a sectional and was going on its way to the regional. And I'm standing down there with Schwartz and Flick, and the high school's up there. I got my, you know, I got a couple of books and stuff. We're waiting to go in after lunch. And I said to Schwartz, boy, if that spoon wasn't such a fink, he'd let us off a half day. And Schwartz says, ah, that's right, spoon's a fink. And Flick says, yeah, spoon's a fink. And about 20, about 20 yards away, somebody hollered, yeah, spoon's a fink. You have no idea how that spread. Within five minutes, there's 3,000 kids hollering, Spoon's a big! Spoon's a big sink! At the school. I'm standing And suddenly the door slams open, and here stands Spoon. He's this tall, gray-haired man. He's made out of granite. And the kids have been throwing lunch bags and stuff, you know. He slams open the door and a couple of tomatoes fly. Tuna salad sandwich goes over his head, you know. He gets a Twinkie in the head. He brushes it off. Boy, and I'm scared to death, you know. And, and, and Spoon steps out on the steps and he just looks down. All the kids. He said, stop it. Now get in there. 3,000 kids walked in. And ever since that time when I read about demonstrations, I remember how I started one and how easy it is. If any of you want to start a demonstration someday, you can. You know, as a matter of fact, I suspect if a crowd on the ground floor of the Empire State Building standing down there waiting for an elevator, if one guy says, hey, let's start rocking this building. <laughs> within 10 minutes, 18 people would be going back and forth. And within a half an hour, the building would be going like... Can't you see that building falling right over into Queens, you know? Boom. Well, all right, you know, I'm, I'm standing back there, and I'm in the orchestra, see? I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm used to this thing, you know, it's kind of showbiz, the kids are coming in, and they're looking up at me, looking up at the orchestra, 
and we're struggling our way through pomp and circumstances. And then we're through. All the kids are out in front of us. There's 1,000 kids in the auditorium section. And you can smell the shirts and the corduroy knickers. How many of you remember the smell of a good pair of really fermenting corduroy knickers? With twigs growing out of them, you know? It's like a kid is wearing just a... He's wearing a pair of peat moss. <laughs> and, and, you know, the kids are all coming in. The girls are all sitting down there. And I'm looking down... And the curtain goes up. You hear it go up. And there sitting on the, on the podium, all by himself, is Mr. Spohn. He looks down. He gets up. Today, children, we have a rare treat. Mr. Amos L. Watanabe, who is a famous actor, will give us his world-famous impression of Abraham Lincoln. What radio station is this, gang? I hear somebody in the wing behind me whispering. <laughs> Mr. Spohn looks. Nothing. In just a moment, Mr. Watanabe will be prepared to give us his world-famous program. So let us all give him a round of applause. And the kids are all here. You, know. you know how kids are uh, sitting like this, see? And then he came out. And to my dying day, this will always represent something about the theater to me that you never hear about. This tall man, he must have been seven feet tall. He comes walking out. And he walks right past the back of my hand. You could hear his shoes squeaking. I look up. And I look up, you know. Because you know what? You know, when you're in showbiz, you've got to learn how to play it real big. See, I just peering up there. And he stands right to, right to my right. And I can see those two big shoes with dust all over them. And he starts to declaim. Had a tall hat. Had a black beard. He had black sideburns. And he had this putty. Huge nose. You could see the mole. And he had a black, shiny, broadcloth suit. It was Abraham Lincoln. He really looked like him. He did. You know, he came out with the eerie. I'm looking up. I said, gee, that's Lincoln. And he started out. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers and I... Dirks is down there. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers and I watch him. He couldn't remember the Gettysburg Address. 
And Mr. Dirk started to play. He gives the, he gives the cue. We go. And he starts to go. And he this time he can hear the music, you know, and it's rolling out of him. And he's giving this great Lincoln declamation. But as he does so, I observe something. I can't help but notice it. He is swaying. As he talks, he's looking down at all these kids, and he's talking, and you could see the sweat pouring down off of his face, and the nose was coming off a little bit here in the side, and his deep voice was just ringing out, and he was giving excerpts from the Lincoln-Douglas debate, and I would like to propose the following question to Mr. Douglas, this great protect protector of... This great protector of, of, this great protect, he's going. And Dirk should give us the cue when we play. And then I smelled a familiar smell. It was the same smell that I always smelled around my Aunt Louise. She was the aunt who used to give me these big wet kisses. I had an Aunt Louise who painted her mouth on real big, see. She actually had a little mouth. She would paint on her mouth, and it was the kind, now kiss Auntie Louise, and she would blah, 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 all over, and I'd be dripping, you know. And I always used to say to myself, oh, Aunt Louise tastes funny. You know, I was still in my Ovaltine stage, and I wasn't used to rye yet, you know. Uh, uh, you know, that... Well, I could smell that smell, and Mr. Dirk is sitting over by the edge of the podium. I could see him looking. And the actor kept talking. He kept going on. And then the curtain came down, and he was through. And the audience applauded, and they left. And then the second auditorium session came in. It was about a 10 or 15-minute period between two sessions. Mr. Spohn is sitting on the podium again. The curtain goes up. He gives the speech. He gives the cue, and out comes the actor. This time, he's really swaying. <laughs> Four score and seven years ago, and you could hear the audience starting to laugh. <laughs> and you know what happened? It was a funny thing when, it, when in the first auditorium session... I am saying to myself, this guy's a phony drunk. But in the second auditorium session, I'm pulling for him. Because they're starting to laugh out there. And he says, four score. And suddenly Mr. Spohn got up and said, we thought all of you children would enjoy seeing Mr. Watanabe dressed as the great emancipator, and let's thank him all for making an appearance. He was halfway through his act. And he stopped. He sort of bowed, and his hat is hanging on sideways. And the crowd applauds and goes. And the curtain came down. And I can hear Mr. Stone behind the curtain saying, if you, he says, you will never work a high school auditorium session again. I heard that voice start, wow, wow, wow. And I took my bass fiddle, and I went up through that auditorium by myself, you know, with the guys with the peck horns. 
And I kept saying to myself, he's an actor. It was the first live actor I'd ever seen. And now every time I go to a Broadway house and I see those people that play the little roles, you know, the, the guy that comes in in the second act and he's the doctor. When I say, is there a doctor? And he comes in and he listens with a stethoscope, says, that man is dead. I keep thinking of that Abraham Lincoln, that drunken, second-rate, has-been actor who never made it. And wherever he is tonight, I want to say this. That was the greatest Lincoln I ever saw. Because I have a suspicion that Abe himself would have liked it. If I know Abe Lincoln, he liked his bourbon too. And so let's give that actor a hand wherever he is. Yes, hail and farewell. Farewell, sweet prince. You know, I'll never forget, you know, speaking of that myth of, the, of a great place to visit, I went home on, on a vacation during, you know, during the Christmas holiday, and I get off the train, the, the train that comes in from Chicago, and it unloads me in Hammond, Indiana. Now, I don't know whether you've ever seen Hammond, Indiana, in the midst of a winter thaw. Oh, I'll tell you, have you ever seen a really dirty dish rag? You know, the kind with little pieces of coffee grounds on it. A dish rag that's kind of fermented. Well, that's the way Hammond looked. Oh, yeah, I had to admit it, you know. And I get out, I get this cab, see? And it's an old battered checker. And I get in it at the station, and we start driving along these streets. And I'm all dressed up, you know. I'm wearing my New York suit. And I've got an attaché case, you know. I'm coming home to see my, my family. I'm going to see my brother, you know, the whole thing. I'm sitting back there. And I can see this guy looking at me through the rear view mirror. And he's one of these real redneck types. And he's wearing, he's wearing the standard Midwestern work uniform, which is a Sears Roebuck lumberjack. You know, it's red and black, you know, that lumberjack. He's got a corduroy hat with a couple of earmuffs sticking up on the top. He's a real Midwestern clutch, you know, and he's driving along. And, 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 and I could see him eyeing me, see, and I'm back there. I'm looking around. I'm looking at the old familiar terrain. I'm looking there. We're driving through these dirty streets. You can see the cruddy snow. You can't stand there. you got to move. That's the girl, fella. <laughs> Sit down, you got a seat, go find it. <laughs> and so, so, he's driving along, and, and you know, here's what happened. This is, this is all connected with the New York myth. He's looking in the mirror, and he's looking back at me. He knows that I just came in on a train, see. And it's bubbling up, you know, you can get that little look in the eye, the guy's going to say something, and finally he says it, he says, you're from out of town? I said, well, uh, you know, I'm from this town. What do you say? <laughs> so I said, so, well, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess so, yeah. It's where are you from? I said, New York. He said, oh, New York. He, 
has this real Indiana talk, you know. And when, when an Indianan talks, he always says things like, well, it's time to do the dishes. That's Indiana talk. He says, you know, I like nothing better than a good fish dinner. And down around Frankfort, Indiana, they have plenty of cows. And so he says, he says, where are you from? You say you're from New York? I said, yep. That's right. He says, New York. You know, boy, I went to New York here last year. I saw the fair. So me and my wife, Emma, we went to see the fair there. He said, you know, I don't know how you guys can stand living in New York. And I'm looking out of the window. See? And on one side, out on the right, there is a junkyard that stretches to the horizon. And it's fermenting, you know. And you can see the little pillars of smoke coming out of it where the dumps are burning. And on my left, I see an endless string of gas, big gas tanks. And you can smell the oil and the fermenting cabbage, and you can see used car lots. He says, yep, he says, you know, New York's a great place to visit, but I sure as hell couldn't live there. I'm looking out. He said, I guess a guy don't get used to anything in time. You know, I says, yeah, that's right. He says, yep. He says, gee, I can't stand that life out there. Well, that's all part of that myth, you know, that we all live in. People who live in Indiana think Indiana's the center of the universe. People in Teaneck. They think that New York is a suburb. Oh, yeah, it's Teaneck, you know, that they surround. Well, you know, one time, you know, speaking of... of, of uh, Somebody here asked for a story, and and you what was what was the story you asked for back there? Oh yeah, connected with that that awful Valentine's Day thing. Oh, oh boy, I really shouldn't tell you this story. Are there any ex-news boys in the crowd? No, honey, you didn't deliver papers. This lady sitting here with a mink stole around her neck. She's... Well, I want to tell you, though, any kid, whoever, any guy, whoever delivered newspapers, he really tasted it. And I used to deliver papers, you see, in the Midwest. All right, at ease now. The show's up here. She's all right. She'll be okay. The show's right up here. I, I, I'm, every morning, I delivered a morning paper. Used to get up at four o'clock in the morning. Oh boy, I remember that awful feeling. You know, I'm laying in the sack and it's cold out. We had a house, you know, that was so cold, our house didn't 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 keep the air out. It just strained it. You know, and you could just hear the wind blowing in under the doors and over the transoms, and you know, the house would wave and creak. It was a rented house. All of our life, we, we lived in Mr. Ramey's rented house. And the basement, we had a basement that even in the summer was 10 below zero. And so in the middle of winter, the floor would be like ice skating on it. You know, you could feel it. And I can remember lying in the sack. Oh, that great feeling. You know, I, I think we don't really celebrate enough some of the good feelings that we all share in common as human beings, these little feelings 
of true ecstasy. You know, lying in the bed there, and you're all covered up, and it's cold, and you know you've got at least another hour to sleep. Isn't that a great feeling, you know? You lay there. Oh, yeah, you look around. You know, that real snotty feeling, boy, have I got it made, you know? And you feel the cold air hitting your face. And there's this little slight nagging thing, some little thing down around the edge of your consciousness that keeps biting you. And it says, yeah, but you're going to get up, man. It's getting later. And you say, oh, you know, and I, I always have a watch. You know, even as a kid, I used to have this Mickey Mouse watch. And he had two radium gloves that would point at the time, see? And I look at my watch. It's 3.30, and I know I got at least a half an hour. See, I'm laying there, and it's cold. And then that terrible, that moment of terrible feeling when your mother shakes you. Time to get up. Come on, let's go. Oh, oh gee whiz, and you get up, and it's cold, and I'm putting on my pants, and I'm standing in front of the stove. She'd open up the stove, you know, to heat the house. We had an oven, see, and I'm standing in front of the oven, and I'm heating my behind, you know. And I've got these stiff pants that would creak. And I put them on. You know, you get so cold that you walk in a stiff way so that you don't touch your clothes. You walk around like this, you know. It's 4 o'clock in the morning, and I've got to go out, friend, and deliver the Chicago Tribune. Now, do you know anything about the Tribune? That is the world's angriest newspaper. This is a newspaper that states flatly above its heading. You know, it says the Chicago Tribune, and it's got, it's got birds and eagles, and it's got pennants hanging from it. And it's printed in four colors, red, white, and blue, and green. And above it is a big flag, big red, white, and blue flag. And printed on it, it says, the world's greatest newspaper. How about that for guts? So you see the Chicago Tribune staring over 1,000 miles of tundra, looking towards the New York Times. And the New York Times is standing there in New York looking out to sea. And the Times merely says all the news that's fit to print. How about that for Erica? Isn't that a great selection of a word, fit to print? There's just a lot of news they don't even notice, you know? Not fit to print. And the Tribune is standing there saying, the world's greatest newspaper. And it's holding its flag and it's staring off towards the New York Times. And every morning I would sit outside of George's George's candy shop where I picked up my papers and there'd be 17 other newsboys all sitting there folding them up. You know, you get that real snotty feeling of total confidence when you when you really learn how to fold the newspaper, you know, into the sack, you know, pick it up and you start, I can still do it, you know, 
You ought to see me fold a Sunday time. You're looking at the only guy who's ever done it. And I did it in the Christmas issue. Yeah. Am I being challenged? It came out looking like a paper football. You know? And I'm... <laughs> Every morning, you know, I'd sit there and I would, I would, I would frantically do this, you know, wrapping these things up. I had 67 papers to deliver, and this great big fat bag. And I get up, ooh, and the wind is blowing down out of the lake. My Elgin bicycles over here. I try to get up, ooh. Hey Schwartz, will you shove from behind? And then, ooh. Uh, uh. I am carrying the Chicago Tribune editorial. Boy, it was heavy and turgid and made out of cement, you know. I get up and I get my foot over the bike. Okay. I'll see you guys later and off I go. I'd pump about 17 blocks and I'd hit my route. In Indiana, it's called a route. I get to my route, and there's the first house, you know, and you know it, and you know it absolutely, even to this day, I know my route. I know it in my mind, every house, every, every, every porch, every door. And I would pump, see, off, out would come the paper, one arm, you know, steering this thing, shoom. <laughs> Crash! I'd hear bang! That boom. And you know, these, these, incidentally, for all of you guys who are ex-newsboys, you know this, this feeling of real ecstasy. I used to work carom shots. <laughs> you know the kind where you go, yeah, I, there, was one, there, was one, there was one place where they had this long flight of stairs up to the second floor. And at the second floor, right to the right was the door. Just a little, you know, like a little closet up there. And I used to come scooting along real low, and I could look up the stairs, see, never, never, never missing a beat on the bike. I'd give this underhanded swish. And as I'd go past the house, I would hear it go, thum, 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 thum. And right next to the door always was this garbage pail. That was the goal, see. It would go, thum, 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 and I'd say, Shepard cans another two-pointer. You know? Oh, yeah, guys are always playing little games in their mind. They're scoring baskets, you know. Yes, there's Shepard. There goes Shepard. Yeah, boom. Shepard throws that long shot from left field up to the upper deck, into the eaves, you know, into the gutters, driving along. Every morning, see, I would go over my route. I remember one morning, oh, boy. You're talking to a guy who early in life learned to be a dog hater. Oh, I'll tell you why, because dogs hate me. I mean, after all, your love if love is reciprocated. I went over my route three mornings in a row with an Airedale attached to my calf. He used to come turning up, ow, you know, I just keep going. He's hanging down below there. He'd get tangled in the chain once in a while, you know. 
you know, he and I were old friends every morning, you know. I'd get out of here and a bang in the eye. And I'd see him fall off after about six or seven blocks. These two red eyes. I'll get you tomorrow, man. I said, add a pig's ear, you slob. I'm a real dog fighter. However, the big moment, though, for me always was Saturday morning. Collection morning. Oh, boy, how many of you remember that awful rotten feeling of collecting? Oh, you know, and, and, and old George would sit back there like Buddha. He was the guy that distributed the papers, see, and every day he would keep a notation on how many we took out. And then at the end of the week, he'd say, Shepard, you owe me $1.76. And I would go around with my little sack. I had a little bag, a little marble bag. I'd carry my money in, and I'd knock on the door. Every morning, every Saturday morning, I hated it. And I'd say, newsboy, and you'd hear this voice, next week. He'd been saying that for six months. Then I'd knock on the door again, newsboy! Then it'd be a long pause, and I'd hear somebody crawling under the bed. I'd say, I know you're in there! Well, every last Saturday, there would be this one lady would come to the door, and I'd knock, I'd say, newsboy, and she'd say, yes? Say, newsboy. <laughs> Oh, yes, just a moment. I will see. And I hear scurrying back and forth. And then the door would open. There she'd be. She'd give me her little 17 cents. Would you like to come in for a little cup of hot cocoa? I'd say, no, no, I'm in a hurry. <laughs> I'd go. Well, this went on for about six months. Until that unbelievable morning. This is one of those great traumatic moments. I knock on the door. I hear her scurry. I say, newsboy. I walk around on the porch. She says, yes. The newsboy. <laughs> yes. The door opens. And she says, come in. Nobody in the door. I said, oh, okay. And so I walk into the living room. I'm standing. It was one of these overstuffed living rooms, you know, kind of dark. and You could smell canned beans and stuff. I'm standing in the living room, and suddenly she comes out of the bedroom, jaybird naked. <laughs> Oh, she just comes out. She says, oh, I didn't know you were there. <laughs> How do you handle that, you know? <laughs> oh, she's just a minute. I'll get something on. <laughs> she comes out. She's got a bathrobe. She says, here's your 17 cents. Will you count it? And I count it. I could probably... What radio station is this, gang?
<laughs> I said outside of the house. Oh, boy. And I felt rotten, like I'd done something real terrible. See, ooh, rotten. So I get back on the bike and I pedal along. I deliver the rest of my papers. Well, I want to tell you that night at supper time, I, I somehow I felt that I can't describe. You know, you all of you know guilt, don't you? Well, I don't know whether girls know guilt the same way men know guilt. But I kept feeling funny, you know. You know, my idea of a girl at that time was a little short, fat person with, uh, with patent leather shoes. You know, I had no idea. Boy, sitting there sweating. But then I discovered I kind of liked it, see? <laughs> you see, you know, it's kind of... So all through the week, I'm delivering the papers. <laughs> Every time I see her house, boom, you know. And it hit the side of that door, bang, slap, you know. I say, she heard me that time. <laughs> Come Saturday. And I go through my route, you know. And before I went out on my collection route, I had combed my hair. I put on my new polo shirt. I had on my new knickers. I've gone the whole thing, you know, and I go each house. And now I come up to her house. <laughs> Boy. I've been reading in the week, you know, to prepare. I've been reading Spicy Detective. You know, I know what to do now, boy. <laughs> I knock on the door, and I hear this scurrying, see, upstairs. Newsboy, it's me. You know, me. <laughs> More scurrying. I think she's getting ready. <laughs> Boy, this is going to be great. <laughs> Holy smoke. <laughs> Newsboy! And the door slams open and there is this big guy. He's got this beard, you know, big black jaw. He said, what do you want? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm here to collect. He says, Madge, you got some money? There's a little kid out here. Oh, she says, oh, is the little newsboy there? A newsboy. He gives me my 17 cents. And I get back out on my bike. And I pedal down through the darkness. And you know the funny thing about it? Every day after that, when I would go past that house, I would see in my mind this guy with this black jaw. And this lady in that green kimono. And you know, even today at this point, when I look down, I see other guys who've gone through it. Like the time I'm working in the bowling alley. Any of you ever set pins? Oh, boy. Boy, oh, boy. I remember the time I'm setting pins, see? All these, these are all kid jobs that we all live through, and we learn how to live through them. And incidentally, ever since they brought in the automatic pin setter, bowling has not been the same. You remember the pin boy? 
Well, I'm sitting back there, this this pit, you know. Here's what a pin boy did. He sat in the pit. He'd look up that alley, see, and he'd see that bowler. The bowler would look down at him. The pin boy would look at the bowler. And it was these two guys. And in between them were these little pins. Then I would get up on the on the back, you know, on the back stop, and I'd see that ball coming down. Mac, right in the one three pocket, back I'd go. The pins are flying all around, off the shins, off the gut, off the side of the head. All right. Pick them up. And then he would holler, you know, they always holler, set them up on seven. Okay. I dump them in. Down it go to rack. You slob. Cut out lost in the ball, you slob. Then he'd look down, he'd say, all right, I'm... Set them pins and shut up. He'd lay them down. Well, I remember one morning, the pin boys are all sitting around, and the tin mill is bowling. If you've ever seen steel workers bowl, you know exactly what they go through at places like the Anzio Beachhead. Oh, we used to hate that. There would be, you know, every every night there'd be open bowling and nice little ladies would come and they'd lay the ball down and push it. Oh, I remember that snotty feeling, you know, when, when a guy is teaching a girl to bowl and I'm back there and he says, oh, I can hear him. You know, you can hear that voice coming up over the alley. And he'd be saying, all right, now, honey, here's the way you do it, see. You hold the ball like this, lay it down easy, and right into the slot. See, just move it like that. Now, I'll show you how to do it. He'd look down, see, and I'm standing up there and say, yeah, you sure will, Dad. You don't know what a pin boy can do to your game. And he lays it down there, you know, he gets two pins. I have set him crooked, see. And he says, well, uh, I, I hear him say, well, now, that's, that's the way you do it. But, uh, you know, you put it right in the pocket there. Now, let you try it. And this little skinny chick would get up there, and she holds the ball, you know, like this. It's heavy. He said, no, you hold it like that. And I swing it, and she'd lay it down and go, ooh. And I'd see that ball, you know, going dunk, dunk, dunk. And I'd watch it coming into that pin, see. I'm standing there like that. Dunk, dunk. Thunk. It's going to pick up the seven and nothing else. See, thunk, thunk, thunk. And just as it hits, I hit my little loose board. <laughs> and she'd say, is that the way? And the guy would say, well, uh, yes. Now, uh, now here, I'll show you. That was, that was okay, but you got to put it in a one-three pocket. And I'm setting them up, see. And we had special pins for guys like that. They had the frayed bottoms. They never turned over. I set them up, you know, down it would go. Well, I remember one day, the tin mill is in. First time I ever saw a guy fight back. In the next alley is Schwartz. And Schwartz is sitting down there. I'm over here. And we're looking at, at, at this lineup of guys from the tin mill. They're tin mill reckoners. Every one of them weighed 240 pounds. Big gut. These guys didn't bowl a ball. They'd run it, you know. 
They'd throw that thing down at you. They'd spit and walk back and forth and drink their beer. And Schwartz is hanging in down there. And every 30 seconds, that ball would go boom, boom, pow, <laughs> bump him. Schwartz is all right. Now, are you aware that the pin boys had in their little pits back, they each carried a little pocket full of talcum powder. He'd drop it in the thumb hole. And the ball would go up in the air and down. And after three shots like this, the guy said, what are you doing to the ball? Schwartz says, what are you doing to the ball, you slob? He says, I'll show you, kid. Pow, and the ball comes down. Schwartz took the ball. The first time I've ever seen a ball go the other way. He rolls it down. You see, 300 pin mill workers, pow. And you can hear all the pin boys say, Atta boy, man, get him. Let's give human fortitude a prize. Give us all, give them hell. We'll be back next week at this time. <laughs>